You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's a chance for everybody to feel like we're, we're not so alone when you share that story, you know, and you can share it in an authentic way. Hello, welcome to the Tony Howell podcast. In this episode, I have a conversation with Broadway changemaker Telly Leung. So I first saw Telly tickling the ivories and taking us to church in Godspell, and then watched him reach cult fan status with shows like Rent and Glee. After recently watching him beautifully lead a historic original work in Allegiance and then flying high on Broadway, Times Square, and in digital ads in Aladdin, I was really excited to bring him in for our Pride episode. He is a leader in the Broadway community as well as the LGBTQ community, and I think after listening to this episode, he will become your Broadway big brother. Thank you so much to Telly for being on the show. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hey, Telly. Hi, Tony. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Very good. Happy Pride. Happy Pride. So I want to start by asking you what you're most proud of today. What I'm most proud of today? Oh, gosh. Well, because we're talking about Pride, you know, I'm, I'm so, you know, when I think about Pride and I think about being proud, I, you know, I think about my husband, actually. Um, we've been together for 15 years. It'll be 15 years in October. We've been married since 2017. Um, so we've been, you know, married for two years. And, um, and you know, it's, uh, I don't know, I feel like having, having somebody like that in my life for that long, that's been a constant. He's really been, my, our love together and our relationship together has kind of given me the strength to be out and proud. You know, in a lot of ways, I, you know, as an actor, I know oftentimes, you know, I, I definitely had managers and people like that who said, you know, I'm not really sure if you should be out of the closet. And, you know, and I, I you know, I don't know if it's okay to really be gay in Hollywood and, and on Broadway. And, you know, will people think that a gay actor can play heterosexual roles? And, you know, so, uh, so, you know, I definitely got that kind of feedback from certain people that were in the industry. But I don't know, I, I, I got to the point where I said, gosh, I'm, I'm with Jimmy at all of these opening nights and all of these events. I'm not hiding him or putting him or myself in a closet. So in a lot of ways, when I think of pride and I think of being proud, I, I think of him, actually. 
So on that, what would you say to the gay actor who's getting that feedback still or who has bought into that and is, is still in the closet or hiding that? Element? I mean, listen, I, I think that there certainly was a time in the industry, in, in our world, when you had to hide. Right. I mean, we, we hear all the, you know, especially when you hear about all those stories about old Hollywood, the tab hunters and the, you know, what I mean, like those real old stories of what, what it used to be in Hollywood. But I don't know. Nowadays, I feel like, you know, authenticity is is something that you cannot you cannot train. And, you, you know, it doesn't matter how much acting class you go to and how, how many degrees or master degrees you have in theater and performance. You know, it's not something you can pick up from an acting school. It's something it's something that you have to tap within yourself, being true to yourself and being able to use that, use that authenticity to move other people, you know? And I feel like that the the world and the stories that we're wanting to tell today in film, in TV and in the theater are are sort of moving more and more towards that that we are more and more attracted to the authenticity of people and the authenticity of the story. Um, and, you know, I think that's why that's why things like Pose on television have, have really gotten a, a great audience and we're ready for that now. I don't know if we'd be ready for that 50 years ago, right? When, when uh, those brave, brave trans people picked up bricks and like fought for our rights at Stonewall. I don't know if we were ready for it then, but I feel like we are much more ready for it now. So you've played a number of gay roles, Angel and Steven in In Transit. What would you like to say to the creative teams and the producers that are putting together this material uh, in terms of the representation you'd like to see on stage? Well, you know what I love? Is, uh, here's a great story about In Transit. So those writers were really um, part of an acapella group back in 2000. And, you know, they were, they were an acapella group in the city and they were singing, you know, acapella versions of Madonna songs and, you know, George Michael songs and stuff like that, you know. So, and all of a sudden 9-11 happened and they found comfort in each other. You know, all of these people that were kind of not from New York City, but had moved to New York to fulfill their dreams as writers and as singers. And, and, um, and so those four writers, they, they, they said, you know, 9-11 happened and they really spent that period of time kind of healing with each other you know, and, uh, and they said, instead of us singing Madonna covers, why don't we actually write songs about New York City that we love? Why don't we write songs that celebrate New York and do them in an acapella style? So that's really how in, that musical was born. Now, it was 2001. The musical took, took many, many years before we got to 2016 and premiered on Broadway, and they had written a gay storyline. You know, Trent and Steven were always there, but the material from 2001 just didn't resonate anymore. So we were doing that material in previews and, you know, it's a wonderful process when you're in pre previews of a Broadway show. It's that time when you test it in front of an audience, you see if it works or not. And Justin and I were definitely, you know, ramming our heads against a wall because we could feel the audience not connect to this story. So, you know, uh, the writers actually pulled us in a room and said, so we need to hear, we need to talk to you guys about What's, what's, you know, this storyline. We know that we wrote it back in 2001. We need this to resonate with a 2016 audience. What is, you know, and they asked me very directly, you, as somebody who's in the LGBTQ plus community, like, what is your story right now? So I actually, in a, in a small room with Kathleen Marshall, the director, and our four amazing writers, I said, guys, I have a confession to make. Now this is 2016, this is right after, right after the election. You know, when Donald Trump was elected, um, our, was the, the day after the election was our first preview. 
in November. So the the city, the whole city was basically in shock. You could ride the subway and it was as if it was somber. As if, it was a somber, somber mood all over New York. I mean, and and so for for me, I said, guys, you know, I watched the election results that night and I um felt a great deal of uncertainty as a person of color and as somebody who's gay and as a child of immigrants, I just felt like, I felt like there was going to be a great shift, a big shift from the last eight years of Obama, which were so progressive and, and so, so much about inclusion and acceptance. I just felt like the, the, the pendulum was swinging the other way with the election of Donald Trump. And I said, guys, I, I actually, my, my husband and I, we looked at each other and we watched the results come in and we looked at each other and we said, we have to get married. And listen, Jimmy and I, you know, I'm 39. Jimmy's, you know, he's, he's over 40. I'm not going to reveal his age, on, on, uh, <laughs> but he's over 40. So we're not part of the generation of gay people that ever thought getting married was possible. And, um, and, and, and so we, we never thought about getting married at all. We just said, listen, we, this is our relationship. You know, the gay community for years and ge- years and generations have, have kind of had to define what it, what partnership and what, you know, unionship meant to us. And each individual couple has to decide what that is for, for them. And that, but with, with marriage equality being, you know, legal now in all 50 States, now we're, we're sort of going, all right, like we can actually, we, we can get married. And so Jimmy and I looked at each other and said, you know, we, we should really get married after the election results come in, we, you just have no idea, like, in the next four years, with, with the selection of a few more Supreme Court justices, you know, the right to get married could be gone. You know, the, 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 the right for marriage equality could, be, could disappear, right? And we're watching sort of that sort of happen now with women's rights that, you know, that, that's being pulled back, something that you'd never think would go away. Roe versus Wade, you'd never think that that would be something that we'd go back on, and here we are. We're, we are living it today in the headlines. And so I looked at Jimmy and I said, I don't, wanna, I don't want us to lose that right to get married in the next four years, and then we grow old, and then we're, we're not legally wed in any way and I I can't make decisions for you when when that time comes in the hospital you can't do that for me we're not making important decisions for each other and so I said we just have to do it so I confessed to that writing team in a tiny little room I said guys I got married like I ran away and I eloped secretly and I got married and I've just I just we decided that we weren't going to even tell anybody on social media or on Facebook or Instagram until inauguration day because we knew we had a lot of friends who were going to feel very anxious that day. And so we said, you know what, since we're getting some news from D.C., why don't we also blast out some news that, hey, guys, we got married. Do you know what I mean? And, and, we, and we use the hashtag love trumps hate, you know, as kind of our, our message to the world saying, you know, and, and in, in a lot of ways, it's, it's the best thing. I, I feel like it's the best decision I ever made. And ironically, that storyline of Stephen and Trent running away and going to City Hall and getting married, that's in the show now. Because they they basically just made our characters do the same exact thing, and all of a sudden it rang true, and the and and it rang true for that time right then and there. So um, and it also helped define our characters too a little bit. You know, Justin's character, um, he comes from a very conservative family. He's not even out to his his family in the South. That was his storyline, and and then my character Stephen was a, a vigilant kind of you know left wing sort of you know very liberal kind of guy who had P flag parents. Do you know what I mean so like so in a, in many ways too 
it was a, it was, we, even within the gay community, you know, you kind of had to go, all right, like we all come from different places. Like we all, there's compromise. Marriage is also about compromise. And that, that's true of gay, you know, gay weddings and straight relationships and, you know, all of those relationships too. So it was, um, it was, it was interesting that we, you know, that the, the storyline that ended up working was the authentic one, the one that actually happened. Speaking of Telly, the actor, Telly, the artist, I know that you bridge a lot of worlds between music and theater and you do a lot of performing and concerts. So this may be a silly question, but do you enjoy being Telly more or do you love to go be someone else? Oh gosh, it's, it's a totally different art form for me. So, you know, my formal training was at Carnegie Mellon University and it's the, one of the oldest degrees in, it's, it is the oldest degree in acting in the country. And, um, and, you know, so the way that we're trained in kind of that, you know, Western theater arts kind of tradition is to, is to train in the classics and to be an actor and how do you form a character and voice and speech and movement. And that's, that's really what I, that's really my, my formal training. Um, but uh, so much of that, you know, I, I remembered it was my senior year and it was my senior thesis project. And um, a Carnegie Mellon alum, Billy Porter, actually came and directed uh, me and my senior thesis show, and I played Bobby in company. You know, I was a very, I was a 22-year-old Bobby. Bobby's supposed to be 35, but it's, it's college. college. <laughs> it's college. That's what they do. And, um, and I remembered, you know, Billy actually pulling me in a room during one of his note sessions and going, so, um, so this is your, what you're doing. The outside of it is great. He's like, you sing it well. I hear every word. The diction is impeccable. You, you dance well. He's like, you're not talking and listening. And I was like, what? He's like, you're actually, I, I'm saying the lines and I'm receiving, I'm hearing them. And I'm, he's like, no, 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 but you, Telly Leung, you are not talking to me as yourself. So somewhere in this process of you training to be an actor for four years, like you've learned the right way to speak and how to correct your accent and, the, and how to, you know, the right way to move and all of that. But you haven't, you've learned all these great technical skills, but there's this other part of the process where you, where you throw all of that work away and you embody a character with yourself. And again, it goes back to the, the idea of authenticity that we've talked about so much. They says that, that you have to trust that you and your humanity and your experience, you know, being poured into this character is what's going to give it life and that the technique will come. And it was such a great lesson. He said, just talk to me. Just talk to me as you and trust that we'll hear every word, trust that all the, all the notes will be there, that every step will be there, that you're going to remember all of that. But if you're not talking and listening to me in the moment and actually communicating something as Telly, as Bobby, it's not going to make any sense. And, and I feel like, I was like, that, is, that, that was one of the best lessons I ever learned at Carnegie Mellon, and I, and I thank him for that. Um, when you do cabaret and when you do concerts, it's all of that. There is no hiding, but it's not even Telly as Bobby. It's like, it's Telly as Telly. And it's frightening because there's, there's two things that happen. A, you go, gosh, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's hard to share personal stories about yourself because it's, 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 it feels like you're naked on stage. But, off, but you know, and, and also at the same time, you say to yourself, is it enough? Like, is my, who wants to hear about my story? There's that little, like, voice in the back of your head that goes, you are not interesting. Like, your story is boring. Um, but actually finding that courage to tell your story in, in the most authentic way and in the most truthful way and to actually engage an audience in your story makes them, it actually helps move people. You know, it actually helps people kind of look back at their own stories and maybe find the courage to tell their stories as well. So um, that's definitely something I've learned 
by doing concerts and by doing cabaret to just trust that my story is interesting enough and that if I'm truthful to that and that somebody will connect to that. Um, and, and oftentimes it's the more specific, the better. You know, like I talk about my family a lot in my shows and it's a very, it's very specific. I come from a Cantonese, Chinese Cantonese immigrant home in New York City. Like it's so specific, but you know, me being very specific about my, my upbringing and that household, you know, I find that, you know, there, there are kids who grew up in Indian American homes who are like, oh my gosh, that's totally my parents <laughs> or kids that grew up in like Latino homes are like, yep, we have those, we have traditions too. And they're sticklers about X, Y, and Z. And this is why. And so people connect and they, and, um, and I think that's always the goal of doing concert work and cabaret work. When you get an intimate room like that, you know, when you're at a, at a place like Birdland or Fine Signs at 54 Below or any of these great little rooms where cabaret artists are working and you're hearing their stories, you know, it's a chance for everybody to feel like we're, we're not so alone when you share that story, you know, and you can share it in an authentic way. And my goal is to always have people kind of leave my concerts or leave my shows going, I know a little something about that person, not that person's work, not that Telly played Rent, you know, was in Rent or Telly was in In Transit or Aladdin or Wicked. Does, that doesn't matter. The resume stuff doesn't really matter. Like, I know that person a little bit more. And, and wow, how wonderful that he was able to share his story. Where are the opportunities for me to share mine? And I guess if I can get one or two people in that audience or more to leave and go, uh, you know, I, my family story really interesting or like my, my story about me, me finding love is very interesting, it, you know, that, that maybe I feel like then I've accomplished my job as an artist. I like that word artist. So can you define the moments in your life? Because you are a multi-hyphenate. You're an actor, <laughs> teacher, yeah. producer. So when did you make the decision, I'm going to be an actor? Let's start there. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that you say like, you say like I'm a multi-hyphenate, like it's a choice sometimes. And I actually <laughs> don't think for me it was a choice because I, I, I learned very early on and maybe it's because I'm an Asian actor, an actor of color. And I, and I, and I knew that there wasn't going to be as many opportunities for me as there were going to be for my Caucasian counterparts, just because I'm a, I'm a minority, I'm a racial minority, and we are a minority not only in the world, of, in, 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 you know, in America, but we are a minority in, in this business. So, so I go, okay, like, uh, the acting opportunities are not as plentiful for me, so I'm going to need to express myself in other ways. So yes, I, I need, I want to be an actor performing on Broadway all the time and performing on TV all the time. That's not gonna happen all the time. So I also have to create other work for myself in a cabaret venue or in a concert venue. Well, creating other work means then I have to create other work as a producer for myself because if I'm not seeing the kind of stories that I want, I gotta go find those stories and find the people to be, to be working on them to make something. So if that means I'm sitting in a producer chair to make, to tell stories, then, then great, then I need to sit in a producer chair. Or do I need to sit in a teacher's chair and encourage the next generation of storytellers? So, so in many ways, like I am hyphenated, but I think I'm hyphenated out of necessity. Like the business sort of said, and, and the artistic world sort of said, you're gonna be a hyphenated person. Well, you do it well. Well, thank you. You wear it well. Um, let's rewind back to Billy Porter directing you in company. Yeah. And I know there's a fun story there of you booking your Broadway oh, debut. Gosh, it's a crazy story. Care to give that? Yeah. So I was, um, you know, I, it was my senior year. I'm doing company and, you know, you, listeners out there, you have to know that Billy Porter, we all know him as Tony award winner, Billy mother. Porter, from, mother Billy Porter from Kinky Boots and also from, uh, but now he's, you know, he's, he's Golden Globe nominated for his turn in, in, in FX's pose. Um, but, um, but Billy 
also went to Carnegie Mellon. And when he graduated in 91, his first Broadway show was the original Broadway company of Miss Saigon. He was hired to be in the ensemble to sing high notes, which Billy does very well, <laughs> and, um, and to cover John. And so when he did Miss Saigon, he, he, he entered into th this very small, tight-knit community of Asian actors that were working on Broadway. So he got to know them all very quickly and sort of become honorary Asian in a lot of ways. Fast forward, it's now 2002, and um, the man who was his dance captain in Miss Saigon, Mark Oka, was going to be dance captain and associate choreographer of the 2002 revival of Flower Drum Song, which featured an all-Asian cast. And so Billy picked up the phone and said, hey, Mark, I have a couple of Asian kids who are doing company here at Carnegie Mellon. They're students. They're seniors. They have no agents. They have no business contacts. They have no, but, you know, are you seeing people for Flower Drum Song? And Mark said, actually, we are. We're looking for people for the Broadway company. He goes, great. Um, uh, can you get them some appointments? And so, you know, Billy got me and a couple of my classmates, you know, a, a, an appointment at like, you know, it's a dance call, but it was like what they call them agent only dance calls. Like you have to have had like a Broadway credit or an agent submission it was a submissions only sort of dance call. And somehow Billy, like Billy was submitted us. He's your agent. Correct. And so Billy said, you know, I, I got you this audition in New York City, but we were teching company at the time. He's like, you're Bobby. You're in every scene. So he's like, you have to finish tech at midnight. You can't leave tech. So I finished tech at midnight. I got on a Greyhound bus from Pittsburgh to New York. I got into New York at like 8.30 in the morning. I splashed some water in my face. I was at my first Broadway dance audition. And I, you know, I made it through the jazz combination. They put you through a ballet combination. They make you read sides and, and sing from the flower drum song from the score to see if you can cover any roles. And ultimately, Bobby Lombottom said, so I hear you're, you're doing company with Billy Porter right now. And I go, yeah, that's, 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 I just got off a Greyhound bus last night. And he says, great, sing Being Alive which was actually so, which was great. I was so thrilled that I got to, I literally just sang it the night before in tech. So it was awesome. You know, it was already in my book. I was ready to go. And I was like, great. And it was like, awesome. So then he, I went back on my Greyhound bus. And, and you have to understand, this is 2002. This is before iPhones. There was no texting. I remember when I graduated, I had a service number in New York and LA. Like, you know, people barely had, had, um, Beep, people didn't really have beepers. America people had, Online? Yeah, you, it was America <laughs> Online, and, and people had answering machines that you had to call, you know, you had to call a code to, to you know, to hear your messages, you know, all of that. So um, I got on my Greyhound bus, and I got back to Pittsburgh, and I, Billy was like, how'd it go? And I said, oh, it, it went great. You know, I, I made it through all the dance combinations, and I sang, and I sang Being Alive. It was great. He goes, mm-hmm, I know. He's like, I already got a phone call while you were on a bus, and I heard you did very well. And I said, well, great. I said, I, I think I have one more call back, and if I get this job, Billy, I know I only get 25 words in my playbill because it's my first Broadway show, and I'm in the dancing ensemble, you know, singing high notes in the back, but... If I do, thank you, Billy Porter is going to be the last four words in that Playbill bio. And if you look at my Flower Drum Song Playbill bio, it literally is like, graduated, Carnegie Mellon, thank you, Mom and Dad, thank you, Billy Porter, are like the last four words of the Playbill. That's beautiful. So you've now been in the business, so that was about 2002? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's a long time. I like to say that it's more like a mountain or a roller coaster. Mm -hmm. There's highs and lows. Absolutely. Um, how, are, how do you handle that, and how do you recommend the students, the, the young college seniors, approach that? Yeah, it's, um, the business is cyclical. So, you know, uh, uh, I got Flower Drum Song. It was 2002. It was great. I was making my Broadway debut. I was like the kid in my class that graduated with a Broadway show. The show opened and closed in four months. There were all these blizzards in New York City, which was detrimental to ticket sales. There was a musician strike. 
which was about minimums in Broadway houses, which was much more about shows like Mamma Mia that had small electronic bands. We had like a, you know, 15-piece orchestra. We were not, we were way above the minimum in our house. So, you know, all of those things shut down our show. Um, and uh, so four months later, I was exactly where all of my classmates were when they graduated. I was pounding pavement and without a job and collecting unemployment. And that is show business. So show, there is a constant hustle. And I've, I've found, even though I've been on Broadway since, oh gosh, like 2002, it's now, you know, 2019, it's a long, you know, 17 years of being uh, on and off Broadway. But, you know, it's, it's um, I didn't spend 17 years being on Broadway straight. Right. You know what I mean? Like there are going to be times that you're not working and you have to understand how to keep working, how, how to keep your craft alive during those valleys because it's not always going to be a mountain. And so even when you're on the mountain, you have to kind of go, okay, like this is really great, mm-hmm. but this will end. Like this job will end as every great, every, every good thing does come to an end. And so you have to figure out what's next and you have to also keep creating. But yeah, it's going to be... Um, it's going to be uh, often more valleys than mountains is what I is, is, is so just be prepared for that and also be prepared for the fact that as an actor it is your job to audition so and really as anything as a director as a scenic designer you're constantly pitching or you're constantly auditioning it's freelance you're and you're always looking for the next client. and you're putting and you're constantly putting yourself and your work in front of people and getting a lot of rejection so just know that going in dealing with rejection everybody has to find their way of dealing with no do you know what I mean? Like there's that great story of Christopher Reeve who people would see he had just graduated. I think he went to Juilliard or something. And he just graduated and they were like, who is that cheerful guy? He would leave every audition and he'd just have a smile on his face. And it was because he said to himself, he says, I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to have, I'm not going to not leave an audition smiling until I get to a hundred auditions and I don't book a job. He never, he never got to a hundred. Like he always, he walked in with that positive attitude and he always booked a job before he, re- before he reached a hundred rejections. So that was Christopher Reeve. And it's a, it's kind of a good, um, good trick. Um, Matt Cavanaugh, uh, Broadway's Matt Cavanaugh had a really good trick where, you know, when you get sides at an audition and you get, you know, a character to learn, you'd learn a couple of scenes and then you'd go do it. Even if you feel great about your audition, you're like, I nailed that audition. I'm going to get a call back, right? Throw the sides away. Like rip up the piece of paper and throw the sides away and move on to the next thing. And I think that is so useful because then you don't sit at home waiting, oh my gosh, where's my callback? You know, because that's not up to you. That's not, that's not really in your control and in your power to do that. Um, and the other really good piece of advice I got is that, um, you know, and again, this is back to authenticity, but be authentically yourself. You know, at the end of the day, you know, I, I know my strength as a performer comes from the fact that there really isn't another Telly Leung in this business or in this world, right? That what I do, how, what I do, how I look, how I sound is very unique. And, and that is actually something that is powerful. I think sometimes with the way we are, we are flooded with images in the media. Sometimes we think, Oh, we're not tall enough. We're not handsome enough. We're not pretty enough. We're not skinny enough. We're not buff enough. All of those things. We just get, we get all of that inundated of what, what is the ideal right? What, what it is that we should be striving for. And actually in the world of, I don't know, I actually think it's the opposite. I actually think the more you can embrace what makes you unique and stand out from the crowd is actually going to be your strength. So can you define what success means to you? Oh gosh. It's a big um, question. It is a big question. Like... Um, you know, uh, for me, I, I think success is being able to do what it is that you love to do. And put three meals on the table and a roof over your head, you know? So that, 
that to me is success. I think there are so many people that want to do what it is that I'm doing and dream of doing that and, and, um, and, and do not either for whatever reasons do not have the opportunity to do that. I consider myself very lucky and successful and that I can sure. Like are, are like, I have no trophies on my shelf and I've not won any awards and all of those, you know what I mean? Like there are yet. certainly, right. Yet there are certainly people that, that will define their success by that. Like, Oh, like I, I need a Tony on my shelf or I need an Emmy on my shelf or a Grammy or something to go. But now I've succeeded. I've gotten there. And every person I've talked to who that has happened to, which I, and I have many friends now and colleagues who have, who have been, who have been, who have been in that position to win those awards, deservedly so they go, all right, like that's it. I, I still need to like, I still need to like find out if I have a gig after this gig is over mm -hmm. the gig that I won the Tony for, mm -hmm. you know, like my, that show might close. And then, and then what, like I have a Tony on my shelf, but how am I going to, how am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to pay the mortgage? How am I going to put food on the table for me and my kids? And so, you know, that to me is, is really success to be able to do what it is that you love to do, to be, to be a professional storyteller. And I get to like pay my rent and while I'm doing it is awesome. That's success. This is when I'm going to put on my entrepreneur hat and ask you if you have any systems that you do annually. You could call them rituals, but things that you do every year, every quarter, every month, every week to just make sure that you're able to fulfill that food on the table. I, um, I have always subscribed to Save for a Rainy Day. So I definitely... I feel like, you know, when, if you are an actor and you are lucky enough to land that great Broadway role or that, or that TV series or that thing that makes you a lot of money, just know that that job is finite. I think it is, it is one of those things where we, we get so excited. You know, it's that story of like all those LA actors that like go to LA, they book their first pilot and they're like, oh my gosh, I just made 35 grand on an episode on my first pilot. And they buy it and they buy like that really expensive car for like 30 grand. And then the pilot doesn't get picked up or they get recast and they're like, oh crap, I have this really expensive car and, um, and I have no job. So I think save, save for a rainy day because as actors, like I said, there's a lot of mountains and there is a lot of valleys and you're safe for the valleys so that the valleys aren't so treacherous mm -hmm. when you have to climb out of them. We smooth the hills. Correct. So you've been in the game for a while. How do you balance public and private or work and play? Well, that, that is, balancing public and private is becoming increasingly difficult in our social media world. Um, and so certainly there is a, there is, you know, uh, there is a world that I, I keep very private. That's just me and my family and friends. Um, but I also know that the power of, the, the power of social media and the effect that it has, it is, it is, you know, it is, it is the way the world is going. And for, for anybody who has to secure some sort of fan base or some some sort of support from the outside or viewers or you know or fans or people that uh, that support your work you're going to have to give them a little piece of yourself i feel like i do that anyway when i do cabaret and when i do concert work like i definitely bear my soul in that kind of environment so you know when i when i look at my what my social media presence and kind of what i put out there um i i have to i understand that you know, my audience is going to want a little bit of that. You know what I mean? And, you know, but it's definitely a negotiation, right? Like I, I ask my husband if I, he's in a post, is this okay? Because he's not in show business. Mm -hmm. He has a nine to five job and, you know, he works in an office and he has weekends off. And like, I have to ask like, hey, do you want to be in this red carpet picture with me? Like, 
And the other, the other part of it that I think is important for people that are kind of curating their social media presence is uh, to understand that it is forever. That yes, you even if you post something, you delete it. It is still forever somewhere on some server. So understand that if you are really an artist and you care about the content that you put out there, that 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 goes for art, that goes for the the, the cabaret that you've put together and your the story that you're telling. It goes for the play that you're writing. It also goes for that Instagram post, right? So choose wisely what you want to put into the universe. If you if if you want to put negative stuff into the universe, just know that that negativity might bounce back at you, right? So, or if you're going to put something out there that you're not really ready to share, you know what I mean? Like, just know that that has consequences. You know that if you've bared a little too much of yourself, that is too you know, that's just well too much. It's out there. It's out there. You know what I mean? So uh, it's um, I don't know. It's you know I definitely have friends who are who are very scantily clad on their Instagrams. And, you know, they sometimes they, they admit, they and they of course, they're gorgeous and they're beautiful and that's what they're selling in a lot of ways. They also admit, they're like, whenever you Google me, that's the first image that comes up because it's the thing that has the most hits. Mm-hmm. And, and they go, I wish that wasn't the first thing that came up. I wish I was known for something else than that. You know, so, it's, so you also have to keep that in mind as well. What, what, is, what is the legacy you want to leave behind as an artist? And that, in our world today, includes the Instagram post. That was going to be one of the last questions I asked you. So what is the legacy that Telly wants to leave? Oh, gosh. Um, I, um, I, I would really just, I would like to think that I am somebody who, who gets up on a stage or gets up to perform, and, um, and, and, I've, and I've had some sort of positive effect on, on someone. That, that, is really the, that is really the legacy and really the reason why I do what I do is that I feel like whether it's me getting up there to be in a play or to sing or to record an album or you know, put music out there, that I, my hope is that it lifts spirits in some way and that in, it inspires in some way or it makes people hear the world differently or see the world differently. Um, maybe it makes people more compassionate towards each other. That's sort of my my mission as an artist. So anything I've sort of left behind, you know, whether that's a cast recording or even if it's, you know, somebody's playbill and they hold it and they remember their experience from the show, like that, that legacy, I, I, I hope is a positive one and something that gives people um, joy. And I'll applaud and say your tweets, like the tweet that you made on January 20th is a piece right. of history. Yes, and that's, well, that's, part, that's part of being an artist. That's what I meant by like in our social media world, like view your social media posts as art also, you know, and, and, um, and, and, and if you're really an artist, you, you, you know, you know what rings true and what doesn't ring true to you as an artist when you put that stuff out there. So, um, you know, my, I guess my, I hope my legacy is that, oh yeah, that, you know, when they think of Telly the artist or Telly the multi-hyphenated, whatever it is, Telly the teacher, Telly the, the, right, the recording artist, whatever that is, the actor that like, um, they go, oh yeah, like he, he was, he was always authentic and he was always moving in some way. So I, looking back at your resume, I noticed a trend that there's a lot of ensemble-based work, and specifically hearing you speak about creating a communal environment in those two hours or 90 minutes or whatever it may be. Um, So I also know that you refer to every cast as your family. You have your Rent family, your Glee family, your Godspell family. So with that, 
yeah, why, why is it so important for you to create a family and a community? I think it comes from the fact that I'm an only child. And so I never grew up with brothers and sisters. So I grew up as an only child, pretty lonely and with an active imagination. So now that I've entered show business and I've started doing theater and I really started doing theater in high school, it was instant brothers and sisters. And that's where the idea of family really came in for me. It's also being part of the LGBTQ community too. It's the family you make, right? We have, we have so many people. I mean, I, I have wonderful parents who are loving and accepting. I mean, it took them a while, but they love me and they love Jimmy. And, you know, I have a family that's accepting of me and I've considered myself very lucky. There are, there are people that don't have that in the world. And so they've had to find family. It's the family you make, right? And so... Um, I think it's both of those, both of those parts of my identity that kind of gravitate, that makes me gravitate towards forming community and forming family and whatever it is that I do. Um, I, you know, I also think that that's, and at the end of the day, you know, my first love is theater. At the end of the day, that is what theater does. Theater is, theater in many ways is like church, right? It brings people together and it reminds we, it, it's, it brings people together to remind ourselves of our common humanity and what makes us what makes us one, even though we are all different at the same time, we're also very equal at the same time. And it's, and that reminder is so important so that when we leave church or when we leave the theater, we, we take that out into the universe with us. And we hope that that, that makes some sort of positive change into the universe. Right. So I, I don't know, like, I, I feel like the idea, the idea of family and community is inherent in the art of theater. And, um, and for me, you know, it's, 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 it's instant playmates. It's brothers and sisters. And I think that's, that's really where it stems from. So you've worked with some incredible aunties and uncles and sisters, um, including Sondheim, Schwartz, Leia Salonga, George Takei, MPH. Are there any particular lessons or messages that these leaders passed on to you that you would pass on to the listener? Yeah, um... You know, uh, Jose Lana is somebody that I that I love. He was the he was the first leading man that I understudied. Um, he was great for morale in a company, and you know, and I think he even said it. He said, "I learned how to be a leading man by watching Lou Diamond Phillips." And I actually did a regional show with Lou Diamond Phillips, and he was he was really like the leading man, and he he like he really like rallied the troops. And he would he would always have his dressing room door open. He would like he would he would create social events for the cast to bond, you know. And um, and then when it was time for Jose to be a leading man in in Flower Drum Song, he did that. It was my first Broadway show. I was 21, and and he made sure he threw a big party at his house, and he always had his dressing room door open, and he he hung out with the ensemble even though he was a star of the show. So when it came time for me to be a leading man, I remembered, you know, I was doing Allegiance at the time, and that was my first time really being a leading man, and I had a wonderful leading lady in Leia Salongo, who was playing my sister, and she had been a leading lady many times, and she had been parts of, you know, we had talked about that, she had been parts of companies that were really wonderful and love fests like Flower Drum Song, and then she was part of companies that were not, you know, and, and I said to Leia, I said, listen, we're doing a musical about the Japanese-American internment. This is a tough sell. I said, I don't know how long we're gonna be on Broadway, realistically, but you and I have to set the tone you and I are going to make sure that the four months that many of these kids, uh, the, many, of, many of them were making their Broadway debuts. These Asian actors got their Broadway debuts doing, flower, doing um, Allegiance on Broadway. I said, let's make sure that this experience is really amazing for them, whether it's four days, four weeks, four months, four years. Who knows? Who knows how long the show's going to run? Let's just start it off right. And she did, and we did. We kept dressing room doors open. 
I started a thing called Bartelli at a tiny dressing room at the Long Acre Theater. But I, but I, um, I made sure that you know every Sunday we we just we had a drink before we left the building all together, and it didn't matter. We crammed like 40 people into my dressing room, and who cares? Everybody have a shot before you leave the building. We uh, congratulations on a long week, you know, and um and and you know, and I heard other leading men do that too. Like Alan Cumming used to have Club Cumming, his dressing room at Studio 54, and now Club Coming is now an actual bar in the village. It was mm-hmm. born from his dressing room wow. at Cabaret, and that, but he did the same thing for his company. And so, um, and so you know, when it, when it was time for me to be a leading man again in Aladdin, I did the same thing. I, 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 I was like, I, I opened Bartelli off, open often for, for everybody just to like hang and have a place and keep your, keeping your dressing room doors open. So I don't know, that, nobody teaches you how to do that. There's no acting degree that teaches you how to lead a company. And um, it's something you learn by having really good leaders and going, if I ever get in that position, if I ever get lucky enough to actually lead a company, I'm going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to use my time in that way. Um, And um, I I learned a lot from that, you know, and of course, um, you know, doing rent and being with all those incredible artists, you know, being, being with people like Anthony Rapp and Adam Pascal and, and Gwen Stewart, the original cast members, but also people like Michael McElroy and people like Yasmin and Carmine Allers. And, you know, like that Rent ensemble really taught me how to work in an ensemble. So those brothers and sisters and aunties and uncles really taught me what it meant to be, you know, listen, like Adam Pascal, Anthony Rapp, when I did the show with them, they're, they're huge icons. They're stars. They're musical theater icons, right? They, they, were, they were in the ensemble just like the rest of us because that's the nature of the show and that's what the show demanded of them. And so not, not once did I ever feel like I, you know, I was lesser than in that show. And, and that's, that's the power of that show. Um, and so you know, it was from those guys that I learned that very important lesson. Um, yeah, those, that, those, are, those are the ones that I can think of off the top of my head. There's so many, actually. B.D. Wong, also a great leading man, you know, that... George Takei, you know, he was 78 making his Broadway debut in Allegiance. <laughs> he, he never called out sick once. Wow. I've seen him do the show Sick as a Dog. And, I, and he said, he was like, listen, my name is above the title. And he's like, this is my family story. And I know there are so many Trekkies coming to see me in this show. He was like, there are so many people that he was like, I can't disappoint them, Telly. I have to be here even though I'm sick. It was great. I was like, it was so, I was like, that's it. That's showbiz. Even though he'd never been on Broadway before. And he'd never done eight, you know, he'd never done eight shows a week in a grueling Broadway schedule like that. And he did it. I was so impressed and inspired. I'll take a moment to say I saw you in Allegiance and you were incredible. Oh, thank you. And I would like to highlight the show for anyone who doesn't know it. They need to look into it. Is it available for licensing? It, it, yes, there are actually, there have been several regional productions that have been done. Most recently, one in Hawaii that was a huge hit. Um, they've done it in Boston. They've done it uh, at East West Players in Los Angeles. So it is making its way th- through the regional circuit as well. And it's exciting. It's great because it's giving a whole new generation of Asian actors an opportunity to perform that show and to tell that story, which needs to be told, right? It's a whole American story that we've not heard much about, about, you know, th- that 120 Japanese Americans were forced from their homes after the bombing of Pearl Harbor because they were suspected to be spies or a threat to national security. And it was pure, it was pure prejudice and pure war hysteria and fear that drove that, you know, and, um, and please, like that story really needs to be told in our climate today, you know, as we, as, as we watch the world head towards, you know, the, the building walls and Donald Trump and Brexit and the, the fear of, of people coming in and all, you know what I mean? It's, just, it's, uh, it's, 
it, it, it's a story that really, really needs to be told now more than ever. So I'm glad it, it is getting licensed. Um, Fathom Events had filmed one of our final performances of the show, and every year they do cinecasts all around the nation. So, you know, right around December, right around Pearl Harbor Day, they, um, you, it, it'll be shown at a local theater near you, and you can, you know, check out Fathom Events, their website for the schedule of when that happens. Um, and, and frankly, they haven't released it for streaming, you know, on Netflix or Broadway HD because we still do so well at the screenings. Nice. To this day, even though the show only ran four months on Broadway, you know, I still get people coming to me at the stage door going, I saw Allegiance in a movie theater and it was so moving. Um, and, um, and so, you know, there's, there's a part of me that is so thrilled that, you know, people are preserving Broadway shows in that way now because it's, it's bringing Broadway to people that might not have the access to it. It's the power of digital. It's yeah. Like, it reaches more people. And please, like the first musical I ever saw was not live. The first musical I ever saw was on PBS and it was Into the Woods and it was filmed live on Broadway from the Martin Beck Theater. You know, Bernadette Peters and, and Joanna Gleason and Chips. You know, it was, so that was my first experience with Broadway too. And had it not been for a capture of that live performance, I probably wouldn't be doing this today. So for someone who's listening who wants to be a part of making change in the world that we are living in, um, I feel, but as an observer, I feel like you're becoming a little bit more political uh, on Twitter and such. Is that is that one of the ways that you're handling the current climate? I think with what's what has happened in the last election cycle, I think people are just becoming more woke and more aware. You you cannot sit back anymore. You cannot you 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 cannot just say I'm not going to participate and I'm not going to vote because as we see, every vote matters. Every, 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 your voice, your opinion matters. And it's, it's what makes us Ameri- what makes this country great. We're American. We can voice those opinions and they can be different opinions. Listen, I, res- I respect people that, I respect your right to vote for whoever you want. Just go and vote and make your voice heard. That, that is really, and I might not agree with you politically, but you know, I, I, I respect your right to speak your mind and, and if you feel very passionately and strongly about something. Um, you know, at the end of the day, that is what makes this country great, is the differing opinions. And, and at the end of the, you know, the, that is how we get to the best solutions, is by hearing, hearing from all corners of our country about what the solution might be to a problem that we're having. So I wanna, we, we all should be vocal, no matter where you stand in the political spectrum, no matter how far, or how far left, or how far center, or how far right, it doesn't matter. Just speak your mind. And, I, and I, honestly, I also do think that when people really take the time to speak their mind and speak truthfully and authentically to what they believe, that is when we find compromise. Because as we keep talking, as you know, people from the very, very far left can talk to people in the very, very far right, and as they keep talking and talking and talking and communicating, they actually find out that their goals are very, probably very similar, that there is a way to meet in the middle somehow. It's just that you actually gotta get the two sides to talk first and actually express themselves in a civil way, right? And also, not just talk, but listen to each other. And I think that's the other, that's the other part of it too. So um, yes, I, I am very vocal about how I feel and, and um, I, I, I feel like I have a personal stake in what happens in politics. I feel like everybody should have that feeling. But, um, but I, I also feel like it's, um, it's, that's why I'm vocal, but I, I encourage everybody to be vocal. Mm-hmm. That's, that's kind of, I think it's just, you can't, you can't complain about what's wrong if you're not vocal about it. So we'll continue towards the future. What is your dream project? Oh gosh, there are, there are I have so many so many dream projects. I mean, like there's a part of me sometimes that I, you know, I loved my training at Carnegie Mellon, and there's a part of me that that wants to like one day retire, having opened a 
an acting school somewhere. Do you know what I mean? With my friends who I, who I love and adore, who I've worked on Broadway with or who I've trained with. And, and we just start a school somewhere and we train kids till the day we die. Like that's sort of a dream of mine. There's also a dream of mine to like, you know, I, I love creating new work. And so it's, it's, it's always a dream to like jump into something that's really, really original. I mean, Allegiance was very original. It was not based on a book, not based on a movie. You know, it's, it, it was based on a historical event and, you know, and, and so it's, uh, it's, uh, to dive into something really original is, is, is always a dream. Um, gosh, I have so many dreams. There's also a dream of mine to like, you know, I love New York City and I've done seven Broadway shows. I've never worked in London or the West End. So that's another dream is to do some London theater. You know, maybe it's the West End, maybe it's the National, maybe it's the RSC, but um, that's also been a dream of mine is to work abroad. Um, I'm getting a really fun opportunity to go work in Tokyo this fall. I'm doing a concert production of Jesus Christ Superstar. I'm getting to play Peter, which is great. I love that show. Um, but it's a combination. It's kind of a, a cool melding of Broadway people, uh, West End people, and uh, Japanese Broadway, star, uh, Broadway artists as well. So actually the actor that's playing Aladdin in uh, Tokyo is playing Simon. So you'll have a lot of Aladdins as apostles. Um, and um, my buddy Declan Bennett, who works both on, both on the West End and on Broadway, we met during Rent. Um, he played Jesus in Regent Park in London in, a, in an, an amazing production that was out there a couple of years ago, and he's getting to reprise that. And Ramin Karamlu, again, somebody who works everywhere, Tokyo, you know, Canada, London, New York, like he's playing Judas. So it's this great combination of, 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 of Japanese artists, West End artists, Broadway artists that are all coming together to do this great show. Do you feel like that's the future of musical theater? I hope that's the future of musical theater is that, you know, again, like I think the, the, the purpose that theater exists is to bring people together and why not? Why not, why not make that, that happen on stage too? You know, I think it's great. I think it's always exciting when you see kind of, you know, theater from theater from other I mean that's that's how really great theater was born if you think about it you know like even something like the Lion King which is such a big commercial success well it's a success because it was such a wonderful fusion of African artists and Julie Taymor's puppetry and Disney which is as you know which is like as commercial and as like do you know what I mean like you, you you know it's an animated film but it's also told through the lens of these incredible incredibly specific points of views that that you can only get from somebody who's worked with puppets for years and from Africa mm-hmm. you know so like it's um i think that's what that's what makes for good art Speaking of good art, what's ahead for you? Where can we see you? Oh yeah, hear you? I um I have several dates at uh, Feinstein's Fifty Four Below, which is one of my favorite venues in New York City, uh, cabaret venue. Um, and this time I'm doing a brand new show called the Telly Leon Quartet. So I've uh, over the last I would say uh, ten years I've collaborated with three of the best musicians on Broadway: Gary Adler, who was a musical director of Avenue Q for for many many years, uh, for the entire run actually, and um, he also co-wrote the off-Broadway musical Alter Boys. Um, he's my MD. Miriam McSweeney, who is a bassist that plays with so many amazing jazz artists all over New York City and also plays on Broadway as well. And my dear friend Michael Kreuter, who is Cheetah Rivera's musical director and plays drums, but he also has a great uh, record label called Yellow Sound Label, and we've produced two albums together and um, and also a couple of singles and things together. Um, that that trio and I are, are going to be forming the Telly Leon Quartet, and it's really a celebration of our collaboration together. And so this, partic- these, this particular run of shows, July 10th and 17th at 54 Below, is, is gonna be all Broadway songs, but kind of reimagined by us and our musical 
tastes. So if you if you uh, so there's there's some Latin rhythms in there. There's definitely some bong, there's some crazy bongo arrangement we just worked on today, like you know of a, of a show tune. And so it's going to be all the show tunes that you know and love, but kind of reimagined. And um, and Michael and I actually just put out on Yellow Sound label a brand new uh, dance single of um, one of my favorite songs. You know, I'm a native New Yorker, and Billy Joel's New York State of Mind has always been. Um, what I consider like the New York anthem. It's been, it's been my love song to New York City for a long time. And so um, I decided, hey, I, nobody's ever done a dance remix of this, you know, at 125 beats per minute. So, <laughs> and, it's, and it's World Pride this year, which happens to be in New York as we celebrate the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. And so I said, I would really love to put out something for my community just to like get up and dance. And so um, you can definitely check that out on iTunes and Spotify. There's a great, DJ, her name is Twisted D. Uh, she's based out of Florida, but she's originally from Long Island. She did a really, really great mix. And Twisted D, if you if you're if you're a dance fan and you're an EDM fan or if you're a circuit music fan, like you you'll know her. She's she's always DJing somewhere at some amazing club. And so um, she agreed to do her mix on it too. And I'm so excited because it's it's you know we're both New Yorkers, just like you know, give, showing some love to New York during Pride. Kelly, it's been a delight. Thanks Thanks for for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a blast. Where can the listener connect with you further? Um, Well, I I am on Snapchat and I'm on Twitter and I'm on Instagram at Telly Leung, at T-E-L-L-Y-L-E-U-N-G. You can also go to my website, which is uh, www.tellyleung.com. Amazing. So I have one question for you to like mic drop on the end. Yes. Rewind, go back to high school before you went to Carnegie Mellon and now and put that with where we are today in 2019, what would you say to your high school self? Oh, yeah, I, I know exactly what I'd say to my high school self. So I, I went to a, a, a really academic math and science high school where you know your grade point average was divided down to the hundredth of a decimal. So if you got a 95.67, you got into Harvard, but if you got a 95.5, you did not. I mean, it was down to the, down to the decimal, right? And I would just say to, to Telly in high school, don't be afraid of mistakes. You're going to learn a lot from your mistakes. So in, in that highly academic environment, failure was like the worst thing you could ever hear to fail. And actually my failures as an artist, when I fall on my face in acting class or crack on a high note or fall out of a turn or you know, mess up a line, that's usually when I learn the most about myself as an artist. And those lessons have actually taken me further than any sort of, you know, perfection or 100 I could have aced on a test. So that would be what I would say is that don't discount your failures. Don't discount those moments where you feel like you effed up because in the effing up, you're actually going to learn a lot about yourself. Thank you. Yeah. Wow. Thank you, Telly, for sharing your beautiful heart with us. Thank you for listening. And now I want to challenge you, the listener, to actually share your story. Use the hashtag LGBTQIA Future Month and let's all connect with one another. Now, if it really resonated with you, I would so appreciate if you would take a screenshot of this episode and tag Telly with your gratitude. 
If you want to hear more episodes with other changemakers, be sure to subscribe. And if you really like this episode, I would love it if you would leave a review or share it with your friends. Of course, that isn't all. There is lots more to discover if you come over to TonyHowell.me. We have a brand new visibility quiz, a free brand bootcamp, and a global community of creators that you can join. So thank you so much for listening, and I cannot wait to hear your story. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.